Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 1, and we will begin in verse 27. Philippians 20, uh, verse 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 27. Let's try that. I'm excited to be here with you this morning. I hope you have your Bibles out and that we're going to hear from God and His Word as we continue our study of Philippians. And it is, uh, well, I appreciate Mark's comments this morning um, that... um, how did you put it, Mark, that the sermons have been laborious, I think is uh, what, you, uh, what you said. Um, so um, I, I can certainly understand where the brother, my brother's coming from. This has kind of been challenging, at least to me, it has been challenging my heart Amen. and my love and devotion for Christ. And sometimes that is severe and laborious, maybe even painful, and yet good. Sometimes... Uh, hard work is good, and um, today, as we work through God's Word, um, perhaps He wants to continue to do some work in our lives, and I, I hope and pray that He would. I've been praying this week that He would work in us, that we would fall more in love with Jesus. And so let's pray that Jesus will be exalted this morning through His Word as we look in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. Hear now the Word of God. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened at anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Father in heaven, we love you, and we thank you for your word. And we come here because we want to hear from you. And so, as we confess periodically, we believe this will be a colossal waste of our morning. We'd be much better suited to sleep in this morning if you do not come now through your Spirit and speak to us. We ask you to do this for our great gain and for your great glory in our heart that you would find favor to exalt Christ through your Word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I perhaps do not have to tell you this morning that we are living in a troubling time in America. It seems increasingly evident to me that our culture and our land is, is becoming a land of social and moral decay. We see this as violence invades our schools and our shopping malls and our suburban neighborhoods. We see this as sexual exploitation invades our homes through the television and the internet. We see this in that lives who were once devoted for family and for society are now spent almost exclusively on the pursuit of one's own pleasure and entertainment. We see this in that moral commitments that have literally been held by all of humanity for millennia are now tossed aside in pursuit of tolerance. And so we see this in our land, don't we? For instance, in California, starting the first of this year, every student now in the state of California 
from age grade 1 to grade 12, now chooses their gender. And based on the choice that you make, you then will use the corresponding bathroom facilities and play upon the corresponding school sports teams. Or, for instance, consider Colorado, which has redefined marriage, and not only redefined what we understand marriage to be, but has forced those who do not agree with that new definition to participate in those wedding ceremonies. So now there is a baker, a Christian baker, who the courts are demanding he violate his religious convictions. And if he does not bake a cake, he will spend a year in prison. Or consider the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, who just recently claimed that extreme conservatives who are pro-life and some other things have no place in the state of New York. And we could continue, couldn't we? Even if you're not, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. Christian or non-Christian, I think it's probably obvious to all, I think you perhaps do not need to be persuaded today that we live in a time of massive, seismic alterations to the moral landscape here in our land. Much of which I believe, and perhaps I don't have enough faith, that almost seems impossible to reverse. It seems impossible to repair God could do anything, of course, but it seems like the praise of the Lord. But it seems to me, brothers and sisters, that it is easy to imagine in the coming days that those who take following Jesus seriously in America will soon be found, and I quote Philip Johnson here, a scholar, a beleaguered, misunderstood, despised minority surrounded by a society that is indifferent at best and hostile at worst to the Lord whom we trust and serve. I think that's perhaps where we're headed, unless God turns us around. And you, need, you, don't, you probably don't need to be persuaded of that. But what I do want to tell you this morning is that this will not be the first time that those who follow Jesus are considered to be an intolerable minority in a hostile culture. Consider, for instance, the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, there in first century Greece. Paul, they are facing great opposition. We saw the opposition that Paul faced when he walked into that town 10 years before he wrote that letter in 52 AD, flogged, thrown in prison for his commitment to Jesus. And then he writes in verse 30, you notice you that they are engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And so evidently not much has changed in Philippi that Paul was persecuted when he's there. A decade later, they are being persecuted there. And the question then before them is, How will they respond? How will we respond? I think there are are a number of options. We could be filled with rage. Can't we? We could get angry at those who are destroying our country. And we can begin to consider those outside of our faith communities to be the enemies with whom we are to defeat rather than the lost to whom we are to love and win. Or we could circle the wagons, right? Withdraw. Say, well, that's the way America's going. Well, we're just going to kind of hide back within our walls and we're going to protect our families and our church communities and we will just try to minimize as, as much interaction with them as possible. 
We could do that. Or maybe we could just go with the flow. Right? Let's just, let's just, just kind of go with the trends. Don't we want to be relevant after all? Right? Isn't this where the culture's going? Shouldn't, shouldn't we, I mean, do we want to be pretend we're from the, some bygone era? Don't we want to be current and, and relevant and, and, and have something to say? So let's just kind of go with these cultural changes. And you see Christians doing all three, don't you? And I think all three, by the way, come very natural. They're all easy to do, and I understand the argument behind every one. But I would like to suggest there is a fourth option. The option in which our greatest priority and commitment is not to our culture, and it is not to our relevance, and it is not even to our family, but it is to the gospel. It is to Christ, as we see Paul say in verse 27. Only let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Jesus has come and lived and died. There upon a cross, not for his sin, but for mine and for all who would trust in him. And that three days later he rose from the dead. And because of that work and those who bow their knee to King Jesus as Lord, they will be reconciled to their maker forever. And they have eternal life in Christ and know Christ and love Christ. He says, I want you to live worthy of that. Let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, there's some confusion that I think could come up here when he says that in verse 27. Does that mean that we are supposed to earn the gospel? Does that mean we're supposed to deserve the death of Jesus? It reminds me of that um, great movie, Saving Private Ryan. I'm sure many of you have seen that, that movie where this, this um, uh, company of soldiers in World War II are searching for Private James Ryan because his three brothers have been killed in uh, the battles of World War II and the government doesn't want his mother to lose all four of her sons. And so they send these five or six soldiers after him to find him. And on their way, most of them, one by one, are killed in that sacrifice in order to get to James Ryan. And finally there, and at the end of the movie, Tom Hanks, uh, who's leading this, this company, he draws Private Ryan close to him as he's taking his dying breaths and he begins to explain the sacrifice that has been made to save him. And the last words he says are, earn this. Earn this. And then you have the last scene of the movie. It's about 50 years in the future. And there, James Ryan is now an older man and he is visiting the graves of those who died to save him. And he gets down there by the grave and he falls to his knees and he begins to have this emotional breakdown and he begins to weep and cry and his wife comes up to him and he looks to her and says, am I a good person? Am I a good person? In other words, did I earn it? It's very emotional, very pulls on your heart, but it's a terrible way to live. And my question is, is that what Paul's saying? Earn the death of Christ. No, friends. The gospel rules that out. You cannot earn that. You cannot live a life worthy of the life and death of Jesus Christ. So what he is saying is, is rather in light of what Christ has done for you, in light of what he has done to secure your eternity and bring you to himself, respond to that. Live as if there's some value and worth to the gospel in your life. Let your life show the world that you value what Jesus has done. That, that you, you respond to the gospel. Live a life worthy of that gospel. In fact, that, that phrase there, uh, let the manner of your life be, 
is an interesting word. It, it literally is a very rare word even in, in, uh, outside the scripture in the ancient Koine Greek. It is the word be citizen, uh, be a citizen worthy of the gospel, be a very literal translation. And I think what Paul is referring to them as, as their citizenship, because Philippi is a Roman colony, you remember that, and they want to take great pride in the, that fact. And many of those in the church perhaps are Roman citizens. And when he says citizenship, well, they kind of stand up tall, and their chest kind of swells up with pride, kind of like we Americans do. We talk about our citizenship, and we get, get proud of our citizenship. And Paul is reminding them of that feeling, but he's saying your citizenship is not just in Rome. It is belongs somewhere else. And in chapter 3 and verse 20, it says, Your citizenship is in where? It's heaven. It's in heaven. And what he's saying is, is live in this land as if you belong to another land. As if you belong to another king. I don't know if you've ever visited a foreign country before. You ever gone? Some of you have. Most of you have, perhaps. And you stand out, don't you? Right? And you don't know where you're going or what to do or... You're not sure if that's actually food or not you're supposed to eat. And it is very confusing, isn't it? And, and you kind of people recognize you're not from around here. In fact, Allegra and I, um, for the past seven years before we moved up here, we lived in Charlotte County, Virginia, which is kind of like living in a foreign country. Um, <laughs> it, is a, it is a rural Virginia. There is not a stop stoplight in the county. Uh, and there are four towns in Charlotte County, the largest being uh, 600 people live in that town. And it is, it is rural, very, very rural. And, and we lived there for seven years, and all seven years people would still come up to me and say, you're not from around here, are you? Um, and I don't know what it was. I mean, I don't eat corn pudding all the time, and then and I don't drive a pickup truck, and I don't know if that was it, but I said, no, no, I'm, I'm from California. In fact, I stopped saying that, by the way. I just kind of left that out. I, um, that did not help out at all. Um, but, but it was very obvious that I wasn't from there. I loved those people, and we loved our time there. Um, but what Paul's saying, live, live like you're not from this land. Live as citizens worthy of the gospel, which, which, which by the way, doesn't mean we need to be weird. Okay, there's, a, there's a difference between being distinct and weird, isn't there? And so he's not telling us to be strange in that sense. In fact, I, I was at a, a church years ago, a very large church. There's about 12 pastors on staff, and I was on staff there. And um, when I, I was there, hired for about a week. And they told me that, that uh, on Sunday morning I had to wear a black suit or a navy suit and a white shirt. And I had to wear that every Sunday morning. And I could only wear white shirts and dark suits on Sunday morning. And I wish they kind of told me that before they hired me. Um, and I asked them why. And they said, well, that because it makes you look like a pastor. And, and I said, no, it makes us look like a cult. I mean, it's just strange. It is just very strange. And so when he says, let your life be worthy of the manner of Christ, he's not saying be weird. He's saying be distinct. Do you understand? Have, have distinct ambitions and distinct priorities and use your time and your resources differently. Treat your enemies differently. Let only this, let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And you see how important this is to Paul. He begins verse 27 by saying, only this, only this thing. In fact, this is the first command in the book of Philippians that he gives us. 
And he says, whether, whether I come and see you, whether I get freed from prison, or whether I, I stay incarcerated in prison, I may hear this one thing, that you are living worthy of the gospel. And as, if anything's evident to you in our study of Philippians so far, that Paul is living for the gospel of Christ. As he said in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me, all the terrible things happened to me, has really served to advance the gospel of Christ. And now he invites the Philippians to live their life in light of the gospel of Christ live for the gospel, to respond to the gospel. The gospel should change our lives. It should change us. Our love for Jesus should change us. And, and this is what Paul's calling for. In fact, I think the rest of the letter of Philippians is working out what verse 27 looks like in the life of the church. He'll talk about suffering and he'll say, well, when you suffer, just don't think about suffering. Think about the gospel. Think about what Christ has done for you and what you have, and you'll face your suffering differently. Or when people snub you or disregard you, just don't think about that. Think about the gospel and think that you have the approval of the one person who actually matters in your life, and it will change how you face sufferings. And when you are in need or you consider money or your future, think about the gospel and and let the gospel inform how you live this life. The gospel ought to change how we view ourselves and view God and, and view our money and view our enemies and our possessions and difficult circumstances. Live worthy of the gospel. Let it change you. So the question then is how? How does the gospel change us? And he begins to unfold that here in the rest of our text. He says the first way in which we live worthy of the gospel is we stand firm. You see this here in verse 27. As he continues on, he says, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. The picture I have in in that verse is that there's a struggle to live for the gospel. There's going to be um, opposition to the gospel. There's going to be a fight, if you will. The culture is going to ridicule your commitments to the gospel. It's going to reject the gospel. And Paul's saying, in that, in that struggle, stand firm. Stand firm. The reality is, is that following Jesus will not be easy. And sometimes we talk about the gospel as if it was easy to follow Jesus. And I want you to understand, following Christ is not easy. In fact, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. Please hear me that we would find no greater joy than if you would bow your knee to King Jesus and receive the forgiveness and the relationship he would offer you. But understand this. If you do, it will not be easy for you to follow after him. You will have struggle and opposition. And Paul says, if you want to live worthy of Christ, you need to stand firm. Stand firm against the pressure in your school or in your work, where standing up for Jesus is rarely popular, you stand firm there. You stand firm when, when our culture tries to seduce you away from your commitments to Christ. Some of you teenagers or college students perhaps have made a commitment to be pure until marriage. And you make that commitment known, you will be mocked, and you will be ridiculed, and you will be tempted to abandon that commitment. He says, if the gospel is worth anything to you, stand firm. Some of you fathers have have declared you're going to raise your children to love Jesus. Husbands and wives have said, we will be together till death do us part. There will be times when keeping those gospel commitments are hard. With laziness will come up and anger will come up and wayward hearts will beseech us. It's at that time we stand firm. Sometimes the opposition comes even within the church. 
through false teaching and challenges our, our Christian beliefs. And sometimes they come from people who, who have really big churches and it's all over television and they have sweet country accents. And man, they are just really handsome young men and, and they like to talk a lot about you and forget that there was ever a thing called the cross, even though that's all what the apostles wanted to talk about was the cross, the cross. And, and I want you to understand that even false teachers will use the Bible. You know who else uses the Bible? The devil. He knows the Bible. And so don't think just because someone's using the Bible that they're actually speaking truth to you. You need to stand firm for your commitments. In fact, Paul talks about defending the gospel. You see that in verse 7 and verse 16. He says, I'm in prison for the defense of the gospel. He's saying, don't get knocked over. Don't get beat down. Don't be pushed around by temptation and opposition and pressures. If the gospel is worth anything to you, if Christ is worth anything to you, then stand up. For Christ, keep your commitments. You think about what would have happened if Jesus did not stand firm. You think if he got into that garden of Gethsemane and knew what was before him and the cross and torture and the wrath. He said, it is not worth it. It's just not worth it. I'm going home. I I don't think I'm doing that. Where would you be? Where would I be if Christ had not stood firm? My friends, where would the world be if his people don't stand firm? Where are they going to be unless there are a people, a community of faith that are saying, we don't care what you say about us. We don't care what you do to us. We are going to stand firm for what we believe to be true. It was in uh, 1994 when I was asleep in my Southern California bed that the earth began to shake in what is now known as the Northridge Earthquake. And we were thankful that some 40 miles away, that our house wasn't damaged uh, in, in any significant degree, but much of Los Angeles was damaged, and, and including um, those famous L.A. overpasses and the freeway overpasses. There was a story that circulated in that time of a man who felt the earthquake. He was driving his car at 3 a.m., and he felt it, and he pulled over to the side of the road and stopped waiting for the earthquake to end, and then he continued on his way, and he's driving on one of those L.A. interstates, and he sees at 3 a.m. the taillights of the person, the car in front of him just disappear, just vanishes. And he screeches his car to a stop, and he realizes that the, the overpass has collapsed, and there's a 75-foot drop there off the overpass, and he immediately looks in his rearview mirror and sees cars coming, and he gets out of the car, and he begins to wave his hands there. Now, I I grew up outside of L.A., and if I'm driving at 3 a.m. and there's some guy in the interstate waving his hands, I'm not stopping. I'm speeding up, most likely. And he watched a car drive right by him off that interstate, and then another, and then another, and then another. And finally, he saw something large coming towards him. He thought it was a bus. He didn't know if it was a school bus or a sports team maybe coming home late at night or a Greyhound bus full of passengers. And he made a commitment. He said, I don't, I'm going to stop that bus or it's going to take me with it. And so he took off his shirt and stood right in the middle of the lane of that bus and began to wave his shirt until that bus finally screeched to a stop, saving everyone involved. And that bus then positioned itself across the interstate. And he took his car and positioned it across the interstate to stop anyone else from going over. 
I think what an incredible metaphor for you and I to stand firm for the gospel because people are driving over a cliff day by day into a Christless eternity and they need a community of people living a life worthy of the gospel who will not bow to the cultural pressures and will stand firm demonstrating there is a true way to live. If you love Christ, Paul says, stand for him. Stand for him. But that's not all. He continues and says, secondly, strive together. We stand firm and then we strive together. As we read on in verse 27, he says, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The picture I have is that we're moving forward now. Whereas standing firm, maybe we're not going to give up any more ground. Not, 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 in, in not necessarily in numbers, but in our own heart. I'm not going to surrender any more commitments to Christ. And now we're moving forward. That is, I think, including reaching the lost, but including the gospel growing in its power in our own life as we go on, as we advance the gospel. This is what Paul says. I, I just want the gospel to advance. And so we have a picture of standing firm, which I think is kind of like playing defense, and then striving forward is kind of like playing offense, that we are to go and move forward. And we are to do this evidently together. You see that there in verse 27? That we are to, with one mind, he says, strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. And in fact, it's standing firm. I don't know if you noticed that. We're to stand firm in one spirit. And so what the apostle is telling us is that in order to stand firm and to strive for, we need to do it together. We need to do it in unity. We need to do it in harmony the, the picture I have in my mind is a, an approaching um, line of Roman legionnaires with their shields together forming a seamless wall, their shields above them forming a, a seamless protective barrier, a barrier moving forward. And if they are divided is when they will be conquered. But when they are together, they can actually move forward. And he says you do this not by yourself, you do it together. Which raises the question, why? I mean, why can't I just strive for the gospel in my life and you strive for the gospel in your life and someone else strive for the gospel in someone else's life? Why do we have to do this together? Why do we have to do this within a a, a community? And I think the answer is that we do it together because we're, we're trying to show what the gospel has done to us. And what the gospel has done to us is not only reconciled us to God, but it has reconciled us to one another. That we, in hopefully increasing diversity, love one another and consider one another and serve one another and live our lives for the blessing of one another. And that's part of our, our witness, isn't it? isn't it? Isn't that give credibility to the gospel? That it's actually changed us and the, the way we live with each other? I think it points to the worth of the gospel when we live that life together in community. And, and I know I've heard this and, and, and you have heard this, that, that people say, you know, I'm just going to meet with Jesus by myself. Right? Jesus and I are going golf today. Right? Or Jesus and I are going backpacking or whatever it is. I want you to understand something. Is that you cannot live worthy of the gospel apart from the church. In fact, let let me be even more forceful. You cannot faithfully follow Jesus apart from the church. You cannot. Because part of what Jesus has done has united you to people. Has brought you together with people. And people say, well, I'm just going to go and be with Jesus by myself. But maybe, I don't know, just a crazy thought. Maybe the gospel is just not about you and Jesus. Right? I don't know. 
a radical thought, I know. Maybe there's something more important than you and Jesus. Maybe it has something to do with other people. Not just what you get out of your relationship with Jesus, but what you can actually contribute to the lives of other people. And, and people say, well, you know, I got burned by the church. And, you know, I was in church and, and everybody's just a bunch of hypocrites and I got burned. And it's just much easier to follow Jesus by myself. Well, of course it is. I mean, that's a no-brainer. It is much easier to follow Jesus by yourself. But when has, has choosing the easy thing ever been what we're supposed to do? It would have been a lot easier, by the way, for Jesus not to have been nailed to a cross for you. Right? It would have been much easier for that not to happen. I mean, does the world need to see, well, Christians are the people who make the easy choices. That's who they are. They like to do easy things. No, I think they need to see people who are willing to confront their self-centeredness and their self-focus and serve and loving commitment, exalting other people above ourselves as we live in community together. Strive together, he says. You cannot demonstrate the power of the gospel without the community of the gospel. He has brought us together. Strive together. And, and by the way, this does not mean sitting in a pew, since I'm stepping on toes this morning. Um, it doesn't. I love you. But I need to tell you the truth. And sitting in the pew is not striving. This is a united work. We are moving forward. We're not sitting. We're going forward. And so when you, this is why we take vows when you join this church. Why you sign a covenant. Because you are not subscribing to a magazine when you join Hamilton Baptist Church. I'll use it when I want to, and I'll get what I want out of it, and I'll just throw it away when I don't want it, and I'll end the subscription whenever I'm done with it. That is not what you're doing. You are joining a team, and you get a position to play. And the position is not where you are sitting right now, in case you're wondering. Right? We are working together. We are active in building the gospel. And so I encourage you, grab a shield, and let's do this. Let's move forward. Let's strive forward if the gospel is worth anything to us. The last thing that he tells us about living worthy of the gospel is that we do not fear. No, verse 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. So they have opponents. He explains who they are in verse 30. He says that you're engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So this is physical persecution. This is what the Philippians were enduring. This is what the majority of Christians today endure. This is what's going on back then, and it's going on right now, and it happened in Paul's life. And Paul seems to me like this veteran, this with the battle scars of following Jesus, and he's taking these new recruits before they go into battle. And he says, don't fear. Don't fear. We have Christ. Don't fear as they move forward. In fact, he uses a very rare word there in verse 28. Not the, the usual word for fear, phobia. But it is a, a rare word that is, is used when horses are spooked and there's a stampede. Or when an army is, is breaking ranks in this reckless retreat. It's a panic. And what he's saying is one way to live as a citizen of heaven is you don't freak out when your enemies come. You don't, you don't panic that you have enemies when law after law is passed in our land and marriage is redefined and creation is mocked and Jesus becomes a punchline. You do not fear. I mean, it is just a matter of time before you could buy marijuana in the high school cafeteria, isn't it? I mean, it is coming. It is crazy what's going on in our land. As long as you don't say Jesus, by the way, when you're doing it. Because then you get kicked out of school. Unless you're cussing, and then it's okay. But it is, the land in which we are going is crazy where we're headed. Don't fear. We have a battle. 
We have those who will oppose us. When Christ walked upon this earth, they all got together and opposed Him. They fought against Him. And so you don't fear. Well, like, what is happening? Well, the very thing that Christ said would happen, they are going to oppose the gospel of Jesus. But you ought not to fear when that happens. Well, why? Why shouldn't I fear? That seems like a good reason to fear. Well, he tells us two reasons why you ought not to fear. Number one, don't fear opposition because it's a sign of your salvation. Read on in verse 28. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So persecution comes and you think these Philippians are most likely discouraged or struggling. They don't know what's going on. They don't know how to face this suffering, this persecution. And Paul wants to encourage them and says, the suffering you're enduring is not a sign that things are going bad. The suffering is not a sign that, that, that God is off His throne. It's actually a sign that you're walking with Jesus. It's actually a sign that you're following with Jesus. And so the fact that, that Hollywood and DC and NBC and the Academy all hates Christians should not, should not be a surprise to us. It just simply means that they are opposing the gospel just as it has been posed from day one. And, and, and that we continue to follow, and we not, rather, we, we should not fear, we actually should take confidence in it, that when we're being opposed, it's a sign of our salvation. And I think what he means by this is that when opposition comes, and for the, for the individual who's loosely attached to Christ, who's maybe following Christ because um, they, they like the business connections, or this is what tradition, or the parents make them come, and, and whatever it is, right? Well, whatever that loose attachment to Christ, opposition comes to, to that commitment, they are going to run away and flee from that opposition. But those who actually stand strong, who actually think, well, Jesus is worth something to me and I'm willing to bear the cost, that's a sign that your faith is genuine. That's a sign that God has indeed saved you. And in fact, it's not just a sign to you. He says rather uh, startlingly that this is a sign of their destruction. You see that in verse 28? This is a clear sign to them of their destruction. And, And I think this is interesting because how often do the opponents of Christianity seem to have the upper hand? I mean, they almost always do, don't they? They seem to always have the wealth and the media and the power and the military and the culture behind them. It seems like that way in our land. That, that the momentum is certainly not with the church, but with those who would oppose the gospel. And it seemed that way to the Philippians. And Paul says, listen, there is a great reversal coming. And Christ will come and right everyone. And he says here he will destroy his enemies. It is a sign of their destruction. Of course, they don't see that, right? In fact, you mentioned that. They'll laugh at you. They'll mock you. They, don't, they would disregard that. But, but we are to see that. It's a sign, not of just our salvation, but of their destruction. Now, be very careful here. Because how you respond to that verse that says the, your opponents will be destroyed, how your heart responds, tells you how much you understand the gospel. And if you respond with smugness and arrogance... And say, yeah, let's go God, destroy Hollywood or UNC or whatever it is. If you you get all pumped up because God's going to come and and destroy your enemies, you don't understand that you too were once His enemy. And He has saved you. In fact, you look in verse, what it says at the end of verse 28. But of your salvation and that from God. Your salvation is not because you earned it or because he he really needs you on his team or because you were righteous or any of that craziness, but it comes from God. He saved you because he loves you, not because of something 
in you. And so therefore, if you understand the gospel, you want to live worthy of the gospel, and God says, I'm going to destroy my enemies, that doesn't fill you with this nauseating Christian pride, but it fills you with love and pity and an urgency to extend grace to them. This is, uh, uh, I probably shouldn't say this, but here we go. This is, um, this is why I struggle with the religious right. I really do. Because they seem very similar to the secular left to me. They hate their enemies. And I don't see a lot of them. I don't see a lot of pity. I don't know what your political affiliation is. I don't know how you're working in this land, but I pray it's out of a heart for love. Not out of revenge. Heart of pity. Christ had pity on me when I was his enemy. I received grace. I got mercy. I want to give mercy to my enemies. And this is, it's from God, isn't it? It's all from God. And if it has, if, if we hate our enemies, we, we just, we've forgotten what salvation is. In fact, if you want to, I'll to even prove it to you more how much it's from God. Look at verse 29. You want to know how much of your salvation is from God? For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him. Stop there. You notice what God has given you? He has granted to you that you believe in Him. Literally, that word is, it has, it has been graced to you, is the little word. He has graced you in believing. The reason you believe in Christ and love Christ and live for Christ is because God has granted you that ability. And, and this is a gift that He has given. Salvation is from Him. But that's not the only gift He's given Him, as you read on in verse 29, uh, in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. So you get two gifts from God. One, the ability to believe for His sake. And two, the suffering for His sake. Now, if we were to gather together, we would say, let's spend an hour just thinking of the gifts that God has given us. We would spend an hour, and I bet not a single one of us would say, well, should we put suffering on the list? All right. What about suffering? Did, we, did God give us that? Well, evidently, verse 29, I don't know what you do with it other than it has been granted to you that you suffer for His sake. That's the very words of God. And I think the Philippians need to hear this because the second reason not to fear their opposition is because in some way, some unfathomable way, it has been given to them by God. Right? They're suffering and Paul doesn't want them to panic. And they're starting to think, well, does God love us? Or is God even there? Or is God out of control? Or, or what's going on? Is he not able to stop this suffering? And they begin to panic. Right? There's a very famous book out, um, been out for decades, why bad things happen to good people. And the whole premise of the book is God doesn't want the bad things to happen to you, but you can't do anything about it. He's just hands are tied. Sorry, he wishes he could, but he can't. And I read verse 29, and I'm confronted that that can't be true, because it says, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, that not only should you believe in Him, but that you should suffer for His sake. That the suffering is even comes from God, which is what the church felt. Remember when Peter and John were whipped there in Acts 5, and they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer the, for the sake of Christ? Or James, who says, Consider all pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, for the trials have tested your faith. The devil's not trying to test your faith. He's not trying to purify your faith. God is. And so the trials and the difficulties in some way come from God. Which, don't take that too far, but that doesn't mean they're good. Because many times they come as a real result of sin. Right? And God is not the author of sin. And so even our brother Tom read for us a great story of Joseph, right? Who was sold into slavery. And in, in, in Genesis 50, 20, Joseph looks at his brother and says, What you intended for evil, God intended for good. So there's one act, Joseph being sold in slavery, two intentions. 
One intention for evil, the other intention for good. These people sin, but God is going to use that suffering to bring about good. Of course, the question is, okay, then what's the good that God wants to bring about? If he's going to bring suffering on my life to produce good, well, what is it? And I thought about that this week, and, and I was just searching the scripture of, the, of the, the passages that talk about suffering. And I have a list. I'm going to put it up here on the board. Um, so uh, I'm going to say it fast, and you may want to write it down. Ready, go. Um, why, what is the good that God intends to bring about in our suffering? Here we go. Ready? <laughs> suffering, right? We're talking about suffering? All right. And right, it refines our faith. It demonstrates, keep going, demonstrates God's power, creates our hope, reveals our love, gives us empathy, completes Christ's afflictions, increases our reliance on God, and, and come back, one more, it advances the gospel. Okay, and, and you want what a great study this week to look at what does suffering do in my life? Why does God bring it in my life? He's doing it to do all this work in our lives. And I think Philippians one twenty nine, the passage we're looking at right now, he's telling us that he brings suffering in our life too in order to advance the gospel. Why do I think that? We'll look back in verse twenty nine. Okay, you can get those off now. Verse twenty nine. Okay, look what he says. For it has been granted to you. Now look at this phrase. We skipped over it. That for the sake of Christ. Isn't that interesting? You should not only believe in Him. Stop there for a minute. He has given you, granted to you, that you believe in Him for His sake. Isn't that interesting? Because I thought I believe in Him for my sake. Right? But He says, no, you believe in Him. You believe in Christ for Christ's sake. What a great conversation to have around lunchtime. What does that mean? I have no idea. But um, moving on. But look what he says. He goes on. Believe in him. Well, I have some idea. But I won't tell you now. But also to suffer. Here's that phrase again. What is it? For his sake. To suffer for his sake. I think what he means is when God allows, brings, ordains suffering in your life. And you stand up. And you say, I'm not going to run away from it. Because I value Jesus. You exalt the gospel. You live as if it is worth something to you. And and we see this in the suffering church. We see martyrs going to the stake, singing, refusing to recant. And what they are telling all those who watch is that, you know what's more important to me than freedom and pain-free living and long life? Jesus is. And so you could take all those things. I'm going to go with Jesus. Even that costs me dearly. And this is what we need to communicate. The Philippians are suffering, as do most Christians throughout the world. They're suffering persecution. You and I don't suffer this kind of persecution. Praise God. I pray that we never will. But we do have those who oppose us. They may not try to kill us for our faith, but they will try to kill our faith. They will try to destroy our faith. You will be ridiculed at work. You will be mocked at school. And you decide at that time, do I continue to stand for Jesus or do I just kind of quiet down my love for Jesus and avoid the cost that it would put upon me. Or you may be rejected by family or friends because you won't go along with their program because of your value of Jesus. And you could very easily say, well, I'm just going to go along and keep the harmony and not pay that cost. And when you do, you declare to yourself and to all who know you the value you place in the gospel. Or perhaps you may have to take financial loss because of integrity. Or perhaps more likely, forego financial gain because that you value Christ, that you want to live for Jesus. And maybe in our culture, which surrounds money, 
that this will be the way in which we would sacrifice and suffer for the gospel by, by foregoing financial gain because in order to pursue it, I'm going to have to compromise my devotion to Jesus. And Jesus is more important to me. He is worth more to me than financial gain. And so this may be the opposition that we face. But I was thinking as I was considering this text, is all he talking about the opposition, the persecution that comes by opposition? And I came across a very interesting verse, and we're going to put this one on the, the screen as well. This is from 2 Corinthians, um, the, the verse, and we're just going to go two more slides. And I want to show you the suffering in which Paul endured and how he considers it. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches who is weak and I am not weak. And so you see Paul lived a very difficult life. But what's interesting to me here is that he groups all of his sufferings for Christ together. He doesn't pull out the suffering that comes from persecution. You know, he talks about not just the suffering from persecution, but the suffering from sacrifice. For instance, he, he talks about beatings and boating accidents. Right? One comes from opponents. One comes just from serving Jesus. Or he talks about being stoned or sleepless nights or lashings and anxiety or prison and being cold and hungry. He makes no distinction between the suffering for Christ. That whatever he does in, in, in living for Christ and if it brings suffering and sacrifice upon him, that he says, it is given to me for the sake of Christ. That I might show the world that I live for Christ. That I want Christ. And so if you go to the hospital and visit someone who's sick and you get sick, that is part of this suffering, I believe. Or your missionary kid gets, gets some type of stomach ailment on a foreign land, that's part of this sacrifice. Or you get a car accident on your way to go uh, meet with your Bible study, just like Paul got in shipwrecks. That's part of what he's talking about. Or you have anxiety about raising your children correctly. Well, Paul had anxiety over the church. Or you make hard moral choices or have to sacrifice your money or time. What Paul is talking about is not just suffering from opposition, but suffering from sacrifice. And it's when we are willing to suffer, willingly, that the gospel is going to go forward. That the gospel is going to be seen as valuable in our lives. The problem with the American church, in my estimation, is why it's so weak is we are constantly packaging the gospel by saying, look at all that you get through Jesus. Don't you want these things through Jesus? You get all sorts of good things through Jesus, and praise the Lord that we do. But we rarely talk about what we are willing to endure or sacrifice or do because we already have Jesus. We say, well, look, I'm going to get all these things for following Jesus, and all we're doing is exalting ourselves, and the world looks at us and says, we're just like you. We're living for ourselves too. But, but when we say, I'm ready to sacrifice for the gospel, because I already have what I want, namely Jesus. And I'll bear that cost. Then the world stands up and takes notice. So my question for you as we end our time today is, are you sacrificing in any way for the gospel? How are you showing the worth of the gospel in your life? Are you willing to make costly decisions? I, I appreciate what D.A. Carson did when he imagined a young man who was a hypothetical boy who was raised in a Christian home and was involved in youth ministry and 
and there went off to college and spent you know, a couple weeks in the summer in Haiti or some mission field and then graduated college, married a Christian woman and was active in the church. And then he imagines, then he suddenly abandons his wife of 10 years and his three children and takes up with a pretty lassie to whom he has been drawn at work and everyone is scandalized. Of course, the reasons for such moral failings may be many and confusing, but in some instances, at least, I suspect that there is very little evidence that the young man or woman, as the case may be, in question, ever made a practice of making hard moral decisions that cost him anything. Doubtless, his Christian family and home praised him in every step of his sterling pilgrimage. He made the right decisions, but they were scarcely painful or costly because so many people were assuring him of how wonderful he was. But he had not yet been tested by the kind of temptation that drew him to do something he wanted to do, but which he would resist simply because resisting was the right thing to do. He had not exercised the kind of faith that cheerfully makes self-denying decisions simply because following Christ demands it. Following Jesus should not be easy if the gospel is worth anything to us. Are you living worthy of the gospel? It reminds me of sometimes we say this about the president, don't we? We say live worthy of the presidency. And we do that because we, we don't think he's earned it. Or, and we hope he hasn't bought it, right? And we, we don't think he deserves it. We think it's a trust that we, Americans, give to him. And we want his life to reflect that trust. Live worthy of it. Well, friends, you didn't earn the gospel. You didn't buy the gospel. You didn't deserve the death of Christ. But now you have been given a trust. Is it valuable to you? Show the world by how you live. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us. Help us to show this world that we value Jesus above everything. That we would do this in many ways we've considered today and so much more. Ultimately, I pray that we be willing to pay whatever cost comes upon us. Because we have Jesus. Help us. Please, help Help us to help others. I pray for my friend here this morning that, that is not willing to pay any cost for Jesus because he does not know Jesus. She does not love Jesus. Will you please help her or him to understand that there is a God who loves him or her desperately and offers a life that they have no idea what it is like, filled with joy and new purpose and eternity, that they would simply bow their knee to Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.